According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are wrapping up Proverbs chapter 8 today and getting our first look at Proverbs chapter 9. Before we get started, though, let's take silence, several moments, quiet our hearts and prepare under authority for the truth of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice in your patience towards each one of us, your faithfulness. We rejoice, Father, over the truth that you've blessed us with, that we are children of truth, that uh, we have the privilege and delight to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father, the spirit of truth who indwells each one of us and leads us in in all things, even the deep things of God. Father, thank you for this chapter. We're going to miss this chapter as we move past it into chapter 9. But you've uh, equipped us with so much, I ask that we might not ever forget it, that we might uh, daily consider what the daily application is. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are dealing with the final portion here, verses 32 through 36. And this is uh, point number four in the outline. Really, the bulk of what we spent was in the third point of the study, Uh, verses 22 through 31 and point three in the outline took us through the beginning of the begotten one and all of the glories as it pertains to god the son in his humanity as uh as birthed as begotten by the father and how it was begotten by the father and blessed uh to the person of his son and they've been in that father-son relationship ever since eternally begotten of the father this is the beginning of his ways and there's so much when we look at these verses at the beginning and from the beginning in uh, in these issues we realize this is the alpha moment in all of existence and all of time that there is technically no before this because anything before time is eternity past it is the timeless uh, non-moment nature of eternity past but here, as soon as uh, wisdom is begotten, we realize that uh, we have now sequence. Now we have before and after. Now we have time being uh, sequenced and being logged or, or chronicled, being recorded. And this is what we have from the alpha moment all the way through this moment right here, right now, and then on into the future to the very final moment, that is the omega moment, when time is bounded then beyond which is what we understand as eternity future. Uh, beyond which is hard for us to relate to. Dan does a better job than I do trying to conceptualize the eternity future and the momentless uh, uh, nature of, of, of that. The timeless existence that we will enjoy when we are uh, as Christ is in glory. So uh, we have uh, those issues, and we dealt with that at some time, at some length, in verses 22 through 31. But I want you to notice that as this ended, these two key verses, we're not going to lose sight, because they kind of control what follows. They become a hermeneutic for not only the rest of chapter 8, but even on into chapter 9. And so we see in verse 30, I was beside him as a master workman. Then, right? What, what are we talking about when we're talking about then? Anytime I say then, anytime Hebrew says then, or Greek says then, or Spanish says then, I don't care what language you're talking about, when we're talking about then, we're pinpointing a time. 
we are precisely identifying a time at which something is true prior to which it wasn't, after which maybe, but then it was true. Then I was beside him as a master workman. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, beside him as a master workman. So they have a face-to-face relationship of delight, but they have a side-by-side relationship as fellow workers, the architect and the carpenter, the, the designer and the executor of the plan. So I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So there's the with him, and there's the before him, all right? And we should have the same thing, by the way. We should be fellow workers with God the Father in glorifying Jesus Christ, but we should also be fellow sons with Jesus Christ playing before the Father, daily his delight. We ought to be his beloved sons in whom he's well pleased, or his beloved daughters in whom he's well pleased. Again, that's our work before his face. And so both sides of this, beside him and before him, we want to understand Jesus is the prototype, he's the pattern, but we all obey this, uh, this example. Rejoicing in the world his earth and having my delight in the sons of men. So the Father has his delight in me, I have my delight uh, before the Father, but it's in the sons of men. So that then shapes what follows. And when we get into verses uh, 32 and following then, we understand that Proverbs is not simply David and Solomon providing wisdom to their sons, but it's actually wisdom. It is God the Son. It is this begotten Son of God. Wisdom Himself providing instruction to the sons of men. And that's why it says, Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. That he's speaking, wisdom is speaking to the very sons of men that wisdom is delighting in. Listen to me, for blessed are the way who keep are, are they who keep my ways, or happy are they who keep my ways. Personal human happiness comes through fulfilling the design of the sons of men. Uh, comes in the design here that the wisdom, the begotten of God, supervises over us in this plan. Happy are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Happy is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. And we have the the listening, the watching, and the waiting. The triple uh, uh, sheen terminology here that speaks of what we do day by day and moment by a moment. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. This is where we ran out of time and I want to spend today to kind of spell it out. I don't know it'll take the whole hour, but I want to spell out what I view as a powerful Old Testament gospel call. Uh, as a passage in the Old Testament that is almost nearly as explicit as what we have in John 3, what we have anywhere in the gospels. All right, where Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That should not have been earth shattering to Nicodemus other than the fact that he was so steeped in his religion, so steeped in his legalism of of, uh, being a ruler of the Jews, identifying with the Pharisees as he did, that the first things were largely lost. The uh, simplicity of the gospel is largely lost on the part of those that that are too smart for their own good, I think, in some respects. Uh, That he hides these things from the wise and and reveals them to babes in uh, the simplicity of what they are. And so we'll talk about the different issues there. All right, so starting in verse 32, we introduce Shammah, and we have a trinity of Shammah in this passage. 
S-H-A-M-A, close apostrophe, Shama. All right, number 8085. And uh, this is to hear, to listen, to obey. It is not just simply uh, letting it go one in, in one ear and out the other. That's not Shama. All right, and uh, we may have a culture that is used to doing that, but that is not shamat. That is not what God expects. That when He is speaking, we should be listening. We should be paying heed. We should be attentive. It should absolutely boggle our human minds that the Creator of the God of the universe takes the time to communicate to us. Who am I that He should speak to me? Right? You know that He would take the time to explain Himself. I, I'm, I'm not worthy of that. I, he doesn't. I'm not certainly entitled to him explaining anything, and yet he does. He graciously uh, demonstrates his love towards each one of us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he tells us about it. He reveals the means by which we can accept that free gift. This is, uh, to me, it's a glorious thing. So shamat is to hear, to listen, to obey. 30 times in Proverbs, out of the 1,158 times you'll find in the Old Testament. Has anyone taken me up on my challenge? Did you go and read every verse in the Old Testament where Shammah appears? Okay? You will spend a long time doing that. That's a lot of verses. All right? I recommend you use the Bible software to create a visual filter. Do something. All right? To do an inline search. Just so those are the only verses you have. And uh, again, we're going to use context. Context defines things far better than any dictionary. Uh, far better than any Hebrew lexicon. You can open up the lexicon and say, hmm, let's see what shamat means. Or we can see the context here. Because the, the, the passage itself defines the terms. What does it mean to listen? Well, look at the second half of the poetry. Happy are they who keep my ways. A definition of shamat is keeping God's ways. If you're not keeping God's ways, you are not shamating, Right? In, uh, in different respects. That's why I think James in the book of Hebrews wrote James the way, or I'm sorry, James wrote the book of James the way that he did when he talked about hearers that were not doers. Because in the Greek language, you don't have something as beautiful as shamat, whereby the hearing and the doing are combined as we have here. This is paying heed. This is listening with the, uh, the, the imperative to obey that's built in. And then we have it again in verse 33. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Here's another definition of shamak. If you're neglecting it, you're not shamaking. Okay? Shamak requires that you're doing the word of God and you're not neglecting it. See, that's a, that's, that's a step short of not doing, right? This is the passive aggressive kind of rebellion. This is when you say, eh, okay, I'm going to do it, but just not yet. I haven't gotten around to it yet. I, I'm going to do it. I'm not disobedient. Yeah, you are. Because you're delaying, you're neglecting. You, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a step short of disobedience, but attitudinally, what's the difference? In either case, you're violating what this passage defines as, a, as an expression of shamat. And then in verse 34, we have, um, we have uh, uh, a, a triple compound, not just shamat and shamer, but now we have uh, the term for waiting, the expectation the eagerness of waiting at the doorpost, watching daily at my gates. So blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. And so we have another expression there. In any event, it starts here with Shamat. That's verse 32, and it gives us our definition. Listen is parallel to keep my ways. Shamat is comparable to 
shamer, all right? And the two Hebrew words, they sound alike, they rhyme, and, and that helps with the memory, at least if you're a native Hebrew speaker. It may not help with your memory if you are a native English speaker. And as you're reading it, you have listen, heed, listen, in verse 32, 33, 34, and you overlook the fact that they're all shamer. And then you have keep, blessed are they who keep my ways. And you don't really see the connection between listen and keep. Other than the parallelism of the, of the, of the lines, you don't see the, you don't hear the homophonic nature of shamat and shamer. They sound alike. They look alike. As you can spot there on the, on the screen, uh, even if you can't read Hebrew, you can at least see squiggles, right? And you see that's a W-looking squiggle right there and a W-looking squiggle right there. Looks like a George W. Bush bumper sticker or something, doesn't it? Okay, that's the sheen. And if you really have good eyes, you notice that there's a dot on the right leg instead of the left leg, all right? And then you see the M and the M. You may not know it's an M, but it looks the same, right? So sheen, mame. They both start with sheen, mame reading from right to left, of course. It's only the third letter then, the ayin, that's different from the resh. And that's where the difference comes in. So shamat or shamer. And uh, even though they're different on that third radical, both of those radicals are kind of weak. The ayin and the resh uh, can easily blend in in a homophonic way as uh, you read through these verses. So listen is parallel to keeping my ways. And shamer, we want to understand, is to keep, to observe, to guard, to watch. It too has a couple of uses in this passage. Shamer is used three times, or shamat is used three times. Shamer is used twice. And so we have heeding, we have keeping in verse 32. And we have watching daily at my gates in verse 34. So guarding, keeping, watching, observing... Adam and Eve were commanded to guard the Garden of Eden, to cultivate it and to shamer it, to keep it, to observe it, to guard it, to defend it. All right? And the expressions are there. We talked about Abraham last week. We talked about Israel, the whole Jewish nation. This was their primary imperative. This should be our primary imperative. Listen to the Word of God and keep it. <laughs> All right? Simple. Any questions? I mean, how do, you, how do you operate in the Christian way of life? You listen to the Word of God and you keep it. You, you pay heed. You listen to the Lord your God. And you do what He tells you to do. That's the nature of the Christian walk. We have been bought with the price. We're not our own. Since He seemed fit to redeem me, I ought to see fit to serve Him. Alright? I want to walk the walk that is consistent with the calling with which I have been called. So it's all about listening and keeping. Alright? Then, subpoint B being wise this is a transitory personal state contingent upon hearing instruction and not neglecting it so not only is it is it the essence of the christian way of life but it's also the definition of what does it mean to be wise what does it mean to be wise being wise as it says in verse 33 heed instruction and be wise heed instruction and do not neglect it this is what it means to be wise. We talk about different things that we can be. Transitive personal states, right? Come in in the morning and someone says, how are you? Okay, don't get offended. It's common English usage, as meaningless as it is, as stupid as it is. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't hurt. 
they, they don't mean a thing by it. They're just saying, how are you? You say, fine, ritual is over, okay? It's painless. And, and you just lied to them, but they don't care anyway. That's how it works, okay? <laughs> it's a pet peeve of mine, I know. I've got to get rid of my pet peeves. But now, being. How do you be something? Right now I'm being silly, okay? And how long am I going to be silly, right? When am I going to be serious, when am I going to be wise? When am I going to be happy? All right? And all of these beings, these state of beings, in, in some cases, they're, 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 they're elusive, right? They're kind of mystical. They're kind of uh, illusory. And, and some people are chasing this for years, doing everything they can to try to be happy. And just when they think they have short moments of happiness, it disappears from them. And they've got to go get drunk all over again so they can try to re- recapture that happiness. Because the, the time of being happy is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. While the time of their being miserable, looking for happiness, is getting wider and wider and wider and wider. Same thing with wisdom. Be wise. You can lose your wisdom. You can stop being wise. And, and, and that may be the best thing we ever learn in the book of Hebrews, or in the book of Proverbs. Don't confuse wisdom with knowledge. Because you can know all kinds of stuff and, and not be wise. Because you're not making use of the wisdom that you have. You're not making use of the knowledge that you have. You're not fulfilling this verse here where you are heeding uh, discipline and not neglecting it. We want to, it's contingent. Understand that? Contingent. Contingent means it depends on something else happening. That's contingent. So it's a a transitory personal state contingent upon hearing instruction and not neglecting it. That disciplined instruction of Musar. Who wants that? Musar. In the New Testament, it's paideon. It's the, it's the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train up your child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The disciplined instruction of doctrine. Most people don't have time for that. And, and they don't put up with that. It's too much work. They've got to think. And then they've got to do something about it. Disciplined instruction is, is tough. Because it gets convicting. It gets personally convicting. And then you get ripped to shreds by the Word of God and then the Word of God builds you back up again and you realize, I needed that. Man, I needed that sermon to chew me out. And you can be thankful for it as the discipline comes because it's not pleasant to go through, but after you've been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Musar, 51 uses in the Old Testament, 30 of them are are in, uh, 60% of them are in in Proverbs. We'll come back to this again in chapter 13 and, and chapter 15. See, here's the thing. I think some believers retire and they, th- they retire based on when they think they know enough. They've accumulated a, a sufficient doctrine and residency. They've compiled a tremendous amount of knowledge and sadly knowledge puffs up. But love edifies, right? And so they stop being wise when they stop hearing instruction and they start neglecting it. They no longer shamer the instruction. They just decide, well, I've, I've done my time. I've paid my dues. Somebody else can do whatever. Man, you know, there's a, there's a need for Sunday school teachers. And you know how many times I've done that? Okay. And, and so rather than forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, they're banking on what they think they've laid up in heaven. And they, they're throwing it away. They're throwing it away. They are no longer wise. So that's Musar there. Likewise, happiness, being happy, again, is a transitory personal state. 
It is a transitory personal state. You can be happy one minute and be, not be happy the next minute. Every human can. But Scripture gives us the consistency and the provision for that consistency. And that is occupation with Christ. That is consistently dwelling on the Word of God. Tra- a transitory personal state contingent upon hearing, watching, and waiting. Hearing, watching, and waiting. And this is what keeps it from getting old. This is what keeps it from getting humdrum, ho-hum. All right. You say, well, come on, it's just doctrine. Goodness, didn't you give that to us last week? <laughs> you know, yeah, here we are. I know it's not jazzy, it's not sexy. We don't have the glamorous sign out front. We're back to the Word of God again. Guess what? That's what it is. So it says, happy is the man who listens to me, Shamer again, watching daily at my gates. Uh, I'm sorry, Shamat is the listening. Shamer is the watching. And now we're adding the third sheen. We're adding the shakad as it says, waiting at my doorposts. I have an imminency. I have an expectation. I have an eagerness that knows that this life is not the, the, the eternal plan. <laughs> that this life is the stepping stone to get me to that eternal plan. And oh, that it were today. I want to be inside his gates. So we have Shamat plus Shamer, and now we have the third sheen. Now we have Shakad. Shakad, number 8245, with 12 Old Testament uses to watch, to keep awake. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to blink. You don't want to fall asleep. You don't want to be dozing. See, because of the expectation that departing this life and entering into the next is a, is a, is a thrill, an absolute joy. There's going to be shouting on the hilltops. Okay? Psalm 127, the labor in, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds a city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. That's what it is, keeping awake. You want to keep awake. How many Christians today are not, are not awake? They're just as asleep as the unbelievers are. They have no mentality for the imminency of glory. They have the glory. They're saved unto the glory, but they're not living it. They have no expectation of it, no awareness of it. They are asleep at the switch. Likewise, Jeremiah 1.12, when he uh, gave Jeremiah the vision of the almond rod and said, what do you see, Jeremiah? He said, I see an almond rod. He says, very well. You have seen correctly. That's an almond rod because I'm watching out over my people. And the, uh, the picture there of Shachad is the wakefulness, the watchfulness. God himself is watchful. Why are we not watchful? We should be. All right. And so we have the, uh, the application there. But then we have this emphasis on daily. The emphasis on daily, it's one of those grammatical ties, it's one of those hermeneutical ties. We're, we're linking verse 34 now back to verse 30. We're seeing a daily emphasis throughout. Watching daily at my gates. What's the emphasis on daily? Come on, get over it. You know? Well, once or twice a month, isn't that enough? What, what do you mean daily? Well, how was Jesus daily beside him as a master workman and daily his delight? and rejoicing always before him. You know, why do we have the daily expectations the way that we have? Why do we have the continuous imperatives we have? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Come on, I mean, I did that yesterday, isn't that enough? What do you mean daily? There is a daily function. Why did God design things to operate daily? And, if, and from the beginning, this has been the case. Why did he say, let there be light, and there was light? And why did he separate the darkness from the light? And why was there evening and morning one day? 
Why did God establish a 24-hour day-night cycle when he restored the earth for human habitation? Why set it up that way? Could have done any other kind of way. You know what a day is like on Pluto? <laughs> you know? Um, or what a year is like? Or, you know, I mean, the further away from the sun you are, the longer it takes to rotate around, and then the bigger the planet is, the slower it revolves around. You know, could you imagine if it took 17 days for a day for the sun to rise and set? Man, I can hardly stay up till 10 o'clock anymore. And I got to stay up for 96 hours before the sun sets? Man. But even before, you see, the, the whole cycle, the idea of daily. Jesus doesn't have a body yet. He's not going to get a body until until uh, the manger, right? A body thou hast prepared for me. He has his humanity as the alpha moment of all creation. He doesn't get his body until a Bethlehem manger. And yet, even without a body, he has a daily delight. A daily delight. What is that daily relationship between the Father and the Son? Do you have a daily relationship with your spouse? Ooh, that gets convicting. New illustration. Do you have a daily... What is up with daily relationships, with daily delights? See, I mean, come on. You know, I already told her I love her. If that was months ago, years ago. I mean, goodness. If anything changes, I'll let her know. Okay? It doesn't work like that. All right? Daily. Okay? For some emotional, strange reason, girls like to hear that kind of stuff. All right? Every so often. Daily is kind of nice. All right? Daily. What is the thing with a daily delight? This day I have begotten you. Why is that the emphasis? You know, not back way back in the day, but this day I have begotten. What's the significance of that? So we have this emphasis on daily. We have it in verse 34. It goes back to verse 30. And it, it, it just hurts um, to see the unnecessary struggling of brothers and sisters. And much of what they're struggling over has an easy fix if they were spiritually minded on a daily basis. The problem is, is they're worldly minded on a daily basis. And they're only spiritually minded um, every so often when their temporal life is, is a wreck. And so because they're so earthly minded most of the time, uh, every so often they finally reach a crash point and then they decide, well, I better get spiritual or think about God or something. And then they, you know, read a little bit of Bible or they, you know, attend church a little bit and they try to get back onto a spiritual basis until something's kind of stable. And then what's the pattern after that? Okay. They, they lose the daily focus once again. The issue is a daily focus. And that emphasis on daily I find to be extraordinarily significant. All right. And then we have 35 and 36. Now we have four. Four. And this, uh, in typical Hebrew fashion, it's almost out of order, right? Because so much of what we're dealing with here in terms of heeding instruction and being wise, um, keeping God's ways, keep listening, watching, and waiting, we would all call that Christian way of life, right? We would call that post-salvation uh, epistemological rehabilitation, right? We would talk about the, the, the growing in grace and knowledge, living the Word of God, everything we do. Well, now we're going to back up and say, how do I get into that? How do I get saved? 
right? What is it? So we have the four, you know, by way of explanation, you know, what introduces you to this whole beautiful universe of, of the Father and the Son. He who finds me finds life. If you haven't found Jesus yet, none of the rest of that chapter makes any sense. None of the rest of those imperatives make any sense. Forget listening and heeding. Forget listening and keeping. Forget uh, uh, listening, watching, and waiting. You're not equipped to do any of that. First thing you need to do is find Jesus. You need to get saved. Then you can begin the Christian walk. So he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Start with that. Start with that. It's all about life which is only found in, in Christ, that is, the begotten Son of God. And then it is the grace, the favor, to obtain favor from the Lord. Now, is this something you've earned? Is this something you've deserved? Of course not. That's why it's favor. That's why it's grace. And uh, you haven't purchased this. You've found it. And how hard was it to find, by the way? <laughs> okay, well, he who seeks finds. And the, the neat thing is he's not far off. He is nearby. He's knowable. He wants to be found. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He is calling. The Spirit is drawing. The Father is drawing. The conviction is there. God's grace is sufficient for anyone that is positive to respond to God's grace. We understand that for what it is. See, if it wasn't for God's grace, nobody would respond. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks. Who would seek after God if left to ourselves? Nobody. But in the grace of God... We have the, uh, the provision as it's been made. So he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me, in other words, rejecting the gospel as a sin against Jesus Christ. You could think of it, if you want, as the unpardonable sin. You could think of it, if you want, as the rejection of the only provision for reconciliation in Adam. Okay? He who sins against me injures himself, and all those who hate me love death. You see the, the dichotomy there, the contrast? There's loving Jesus Christ or hating Jesus Christ, finding Jesus Christ or rejecting Jesus Christ, life versus death. And we're not talking physical life or physical death. We presuppose that he was already physically alive before they hear the gospel message. <laughs> That's kind of a given. All right, I've, I've never preached the gospel to corpses yet, okay? No point in that. But it, uh, those who hate me love death. The spiritual death they're surrendered to, they just love it. As, as it says in John 1, they hate the light. They love the darkness. And so what we have here, I believe, is this uh, salvific, these uh, salvation passages, a, a broadened expression. I believe verses 35 and 36 broaden the issue out. We have been dealing with transitory practical issues in uh, 32 and 33 and 34. We're dealing with the, the transitive practical issues of listening to the Word of God, living the Word of God, and walking in the light and personal happiness. But you'll never get to those verses if you don't first get saved. That's why now in, the, in this passage, the scope is broadened out. Verses 35 and 36 broaden the transitory practical issues to eternal salvific absolutes. Eternal salvific absolutes. What a contrast between the transitory and the eternal. <laughs> okay? 
as far as being happy or being unhappy. Those, those personal states come and go. But being saved, that's eternal. That's not temporal, it's not transitory. That's eternal. And beyond uh, being practical or being applicable, being a, an experiential expression of my salvation, it's a salvific. It deals with how I am saved. And of course, it's an absolute. It's an either-or. You either are saved or you are lost. You love life or you love darkness. You find the Savior or you reject the Savior. You enter into life or you enter into death. You're already in that state of death when you're born. These eternal salvific absolutes are so... I, I believe they're, they're throughout the Old Testament. I believe they're foretold in the prophecy of Moses. I think they're older than Moses. I think that they were revealed to Adam and Eve when he clothed them in, in skins, in animal skins. They had tried to cover their nakedness in, in uh, fig leaves. And God told them, he says, fig leaves don't do it. Anything you can achieve doesn't do it. He says, somebody's going to die in your place. And he kills the animal, and he skins the, uh, skins the animal, and he covers their nakedness with the skin of that animal. And he says, now when you wear that, you're not naked. And guess what? Some, an animal had to die so that they could live. See? These eternal salvific absolutes, they're full told in the prophecy of a prophet like Moses. We'll talk about that as well. So let's look at these. And again, I think as you see these verses, do you find any echoes of these in, in the Gospel of John? I think you do. About finding the Lord, coming to the Lord. He who finds me finds life. What does it say in John? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, what do you know? All right. And obtains favor from the Lord. There's grace, right? Uh, that we'll see the, the parallel to this when we get to John 1 and we get to John 3. But he who sins against me, there's a contrast. Not everyone gets it. Not everyone receives life. Not everyone finds the Lord. Not everyone obtains the favor of the Lord. Well, why is that? Doesn't God have enough grace for everybody? Is God limited in His grace? Is, he, is it a finite supply? So that, man, uh, you know, jerks like me get saved and then that, that just diminishes the grace of God for somebody else that really could have gotten saved if I hadn't stolen all that grace away from them. Not how it works. His grace is infinite. And actually His grace is sufficient for everybody. But it's rejected by so many. Why is that? Not because His grace was insufficient, but because, again, they hated Him and they loved death it's a sin against god but it is a self-injury it doesn't say he who sins against me i injure him it says he injures himself he injures himself they've judged themselves unworthy of eternal life as it says in acts chapter 3 right so what are the echoes here let's look at john chapter 1 Let's see what I'm talking about on this. In the beginning was the Word. This is wisdom, begotten of the Father. And the Word was with God. Beside Him as a master workman, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, rejoicing always before Him, playing always before Him, having His delight in the sons of men. All things came into being through Him. That's, I was beside him as a master workman. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of man. Why does he have his delight in the sons of man? He doesn't delight in the angels, doesn't delight in the animals, doesn't delight in the, in the shooting stars or the black holes or the Milky Way or anything like that. He has his delights in the sons of men because that's the realm that had, is designed to have the Zoe life that he himself has. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The Father begot that Zoe life in Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, over to John chapter 3. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, notice, is it limited? Is it finite? Is there only so many people who can, or is there only so many people who will? Whosoever, I love whosoever, believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is a provision that's made, but not everyone receives it. Not everyone receives it. Uh, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So we had in Proverbs 8, those who hate me love death. It's a different hate, a different love. It's, it's contrary to what God has provided. Here it's described this way. They uh, don't come to the light. They love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. This is what it's about, those who hate Jesus Christ. There is a realm that is provided for those who hate Jesus Christ, and that's the lake of fire for all eternity. God would not bring those people to heaven. Why would he do that? That is not a realm that is compatible with their nature. Hell is compatible with their nature. The lake of fire is compatible with their nature. Everyone who does evil hates the lie and does not come to the lie for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been brought in God. There's so much here in John chapter 3. We can get on down to verse 36. You see in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Read that next time and contemplate Proverbs 8 with the Father begetting the Son and the, the delighting always before Him. There's nothing new. It didn't just start happening when Jesus speaks these words. This has been the case since today I have begotten thee. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who finds me has life. What do we read? He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. You want to enter into the grace of eternal life? You need to find Christ. It's the only provision. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, what does it say in Proverbs 8? He who hates me, who sins against me, injures himself, and all who hate me love death. He who uh, does not obey the Son will not see life, but... The wrath of God abides on him. Already does. Already abides on him. He injures himself. He's in that lost estate already in Adam. Now, I believe these eternal salvific absolutes are also foretold in the prophecy of a prophet like Moses. I think it was clear at least as early as Deuteronomy 18. I think they were preaching the gospel going back to Genesis 3, honestly. But uh, we don't have scripture written until Moses. 
And so the narrative of how these uh, gospel messages might have been uh, spoken escapes us sometimes. All right, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. And um, as they're getting ready to enter into the law, or enter into the land, remember the Exodus generation was all under the death sentence and only the wilderness generation would be allowed to come into the land. 40 years in, of wandering in the wilderness and now the, the over 20 crowd is dying off and it's only the under 20 crowd that's still around. Those that had been under 20 at the Kadesh Barnea rebellion. And now Moses is going through the law a second time. That's why we have Deutero for second, Namas for law. Deuteronomos is the second giving of the law. And so in the context of this promise now is this uh, prophet like Moses that's on the way. And Moses is getting ready to hand things off to Joshua, right? But don't worry. And uh, if, you're, if you're fearful that Joshua is not another Moses, well, relax. Joshua is suited for his task. He's not another Moses, but guess what? Another Moses is coming. In fact, someone greater than Moses is coming. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus will be faithful as a son. And uh, we have this promise. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Sadly, many of them won't. Most of them don't. Not until, not in first advent. They all will at second advent, but not first advent. And so a prophet like Moses, someone that will be a, a redeemer, a deliverer of his brethren, hated by his brethren, but delivering them nonetheless. It can, resumes in verse 18. I will raise up a prophet among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. and He shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus says again and again, my message is not my own. As I hear, I speak. I'm delivering the message I received from my Father, and uh, you're not listening, is what Jesus would tell his, his critics, his audience. But I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that who, whosoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name. Now that's not just a typical prophet with a typical message, with a typical rejection. This is the begotten Son of God delivering the good news of God the Father. You reject that message, you're going to hell. Rejecting Christ, you're rejecting eternal life. Find, he who finds the Son, though, finds life and obtains favor. Why? Because it's the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. You want to satisfy the Father? Accept the work of the Son on your behalf. There's, there's no other propitiation in the universe. Whosoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, it goes on, in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. Somebody else comes along who's not the Christ, but says he is the Christ. It's a false Christ. Reject that one. All right? Reject that one. So I see a salvific value, these eternal salvific absolutes, the only provision of eternal life comes through the Messiah, through the Christ, through the prophet like unto Moses, through the begotten Son of God, the God-man, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. His is the only message of life. Reject that, there is no other answer. Reject that, there is no other salvation. You can relate this, by the way, you want to take Deuteronomy 18, connect it over to Acts 3, 
and uh, should be plain as the nose on my face. Acts chapter 3. By the way, Islam says that uh, Moses was talking about Muhammad there. Did you know that? They said Muhammad was the prophet like Moses. Muhammad was the coming prophet. Just slap him, say no. Spiritually, graciously, okay? Don't go jihad or anything, but just tell him. Say, that, that, that's, not, that's not Muhammad. That's Jesus was the spoken prophet, the one who saves from our sins. How does Muhammad save us from our sins? All right, Acts 3, 22 and 23. It's kind of the opposite, isn't it? Muhammad kind of motivates plunder and pillaging and rape and everything else. All right, Acts chapter 3. I love this. Verse 17. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter just because it's fun. This is Peter's second sermon. You thought the first one was good in chapter 2. This one's great. Um, See, because he heals this guy, this lame guy, and they're all amazed. He says, what are you amazed for? I have an amazing Savior. Verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Ignorance is okay. I can fix ignorance. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, ignorance, that can, be, that can be remedied. We can get you the doctrine you need. Ignorance, that's where we get uh, agnosticism, by the way, agnoia in the Greek. It just means you don't know. You have a lack of knowledge. You don't know. So I encounter atheists, and I tell them I don't believe in atheists. I encounter agnostics. I say I can fix that. All right? You acted in ignorance. So the next time someone tells you they're agnostic, just say, I'm sorry, you're ignorant. Let me give you the information you need. Now, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So you don't know what's going on, but God's way ahead of you. He's got this eternal plan, and he fulfilled it in Christ. Therefore, repent and return talking to a Jewish audience still, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's still preaching the kingdom for Israel. They've got a chance to to get their kingdom even though they crucified their Christ. Repent and return. Notice that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Would it it have broken Peter's heart that day to tell him, uh, you know, come from the future and show up that day and say, hi Peter, I'm Pastor Bob from Austin Bible Church and hate to tell you this, but I passed her in 2016 A.D. <laughs> and the church age is still going on. The return of Christ hasn't happened yet. See, as far as Peter knows, this is imminency. You know, he ascended on, on Pentecost, or 10 days before Pentecost. He ascended on, uh, what do we call that? 10 days before Pentecost. Um, 40, not Pente. Pente is 50. 40, Quarantacost, whatever. He, he ascended... 10 days, after 40 days, right? Tessera Contacost. He, um, on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And they've been hoping, hoping, hoping he can come back. Here comes the Holy Spirit 10 days later. Great, happy to have it. Where's Jesus? Let Jesus come back. Jesus comes back, he brings the kingdom. Jesus comes back and we conquered Armageddon. Jesus comes back and things are great. And so he's telling his Jewish audience here, you crucified him in ignorance. 
repent and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We just don't know when. Oh, that it were today. And Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Oh, here's this Deuteronomy prophecy. And it's being cited after first advent. It's being cited with an expectation of second advent in its fulfillment. Uh, to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Oh my goodness, you, you, you don't accept the gospel message now. There's, there's false Christ, there's antichrists that are coming. It'll be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's these Jewish people, descendants of all the Abrahamic promises, and they crucified him and he went back to heaven. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And look what you did. You crucified him and he went back to heaven. All right, well, that's not a popular message. And that leads into chapter 4. But understand, it's an eternal salvific absolute. And I think we can see it in uh, Moses' message and Peter's message and so many of these messages on that eternal basis. All right, back to Proverbs then. He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. You know, the verses that they used as they would preach the gospel to their children, to their unbelievers. Let's give a preview. I've got 10 minutes suspected we might so i went ahead and prepped a chapter nine slideshow looks kind of like the chapter eight slideshow doesn't it ah but now we got chapter nine (laughs) recapping and concluding the parental wisdom portion of proverbs see what happens here chapter nine forms the conclusion to this first segment of the book we're taking chapters one through nine and i've titled it parental wisdom Uh, Because time and time and time again we see the heart of David and the heart of Bathsheba that are being poured out into Solomon. And then Solomon in his day is putting that on paper, pouring it out to his children. We have the parental portion, the warning about the strange women, the warning about these other things, how to grow in the Word of God and and all of that. And then it's like when you get to Proverbs 10, 1, it's like a whole new uh, beginning of the book. If you glance over to Proverbs 10, 1, what do you see? The Proverbs of Solomon. What have I been reading all this time? (laughs) I mean, it's like a do-over. It's like a reboot, a restart on the book. It's a a fresh introduction to the book, which, by the way, takes us until um, the end of of, uh, 24, first part of 25. Because when you get to Proverbs 25, these also are Proverbs of Solomon. And we've got another collection then in, in 25 through 29. Uh, what's sometimes called the Hezekiah collection, compiled in the days of Hezekiah and added to the canon, added to the earlier collection. All right? And then 30 and 31 were added whenever they were added. 
all right, as this book came together in pieces. So chapters 1 through 9 was a, was a unit, and I believe it was a unit composed mostly by David and Bathsheba that uh, they instilled it into Solomon verbally. And then he then took it and put it on paper under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and placed it in the canon at that time. So in chapter 9, we're going to tie really all of these early nine chapters together. And we're going to contrast Lady Wisdom in the first few verses with the uh, Woman of Folly in the final verses, verses 13 through 18. We've got a segment there. And in between, in between we have the scoffer. Now the scoffer was introduced in chapter 1. We haven't seen much of him in the meantime. He comes back here. He gets a, a significant development here. The scoffer and his scoffing. And uh, what happens when you start rejecting doctrine, when you've had the chance to get grounded, or maybe you've had some grounding, and then you walk away from it. See, the scoffer is not the fool. He's worse than a fool. He's a fool who had a chance to know better. All right, so we'll deal with some of those things there too. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. That's a big house. She has prepared her food. I like that. You know, food, I'm there. Um, she has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. There is a place to dwell. Here is a palace. Here is a... Uh, and all of this is metaphor. All of this we understand symbolically. We understand the nature of this. But this is where I want to live, right? This is the house I want to live in. I want to dwell in this house. I want to dwell in this house to the maximum while I'm on earth, preparing myself for that house I'm going to dwell in when I get there. But see, there's another house I could live in. And there's another invitation there. The woman of folly in verse 13. She's boisterous, naive, and knows nothing. She sits in the doorway of her house on the seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. And she wants to trip them up. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says. And notice, there might be certain similarities, but there's a night and day difference in the, in the content. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. Oh, come on. It's better. Oh, are you kidding? This isn't the, the humdrum ho-hum. This is, this is adventure. This is fun. This is exciting. You can get a little thrill. This is, come on, we might get caught. That adds to the thrill. Stolen water. Well, what about thou shalt not steal? <laughs> right? Stolen water is sweet. Oh, come on. No one's going to know. It'll be fun. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Well, if it's pleasant, why am I eating it in secret? <laughs> if it's pleasant, let's, let's invite everybody. Let's have this out in the open. There's a reason why you're sneaking around. And he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So, total opposites. In both places, we have places to dwell. We have residencies. We have houses. We have meals prepared. One is good for you and one is poisonous. We have pure maidens that are uh, 
agents of the invitation, I believe, agents of the invitation, that he, she sends them out so that they can invite and bring in the guests in all purity. In this case, it's uh, the, the guests are in the depths of Sheol. He does not know that the dead are there. The, the path that direction is, is, uh, is death. And so we're going to deal with this next week. We'll come back and we'll show this as a summary and a conclusion. Chapter 9 recaps and concludes the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Wisdom and folly are contrasted. We also see the scoffing scoffer. The scoffing scoffer is going to be spotlighted for us here in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 12. The scoffing scoffer. I haven't seen a lot of them. He was introduced in chapter 1. We haven't seen a lot of them. But here we see that... uh, there's a bit of combat involved because if you reprove a scoffer, he's not going to like it. And um, he will hate you. Now it gets personal. And uh, give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, he will increase his learning. Uh, we need to learn the difference between the scoffer and the wise man and who we're preaching to. We can't cast our pearls before a swine. Those dogs will turn and rend us to pieces. They will devour us in uh, different things there. Anyway, we'll, we'll deal with that as well. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this Proverbs class today. Thank you for the conclusion of chapter 8. We're looking forward to the chapter 9 and looking forward to this segment being concluded, Father. And I just thank you for all your grace in, in all these lessons. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.